This is exactly right. This story contains adult content and language, along with references to sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. What's interesting about these cases is it's people killed in pairs, which is a very rare occurrence that you have a serial killer who focuses on killing two people at a time. It also is remarkable because it's unsolved. I'm Kate Winkler Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show. I've interviewed some people in person and some from my home studio over Zoom, and they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories, and now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. My name is Blaine Pardo. He and his daughter wrote a book about the Colonial Parkway murders. This is a serial killer who murdered four couples along a desolate stretch of road in the 1980s. Blaine and I talked when I was on assignment for Tenfold More Wicked in Gloucester, Virginia, which is about 30 minutes away from where the murders took place. I'm a kid from the 80s. You know, that was my time era, 70s and 80s. And this was a crime that took place in the 80s. So it resonates with me. You're really focused in the Williamsburg area, Yorktown area. So 1980s Yeah, in this area. No cell phones. We've got people not wearing seatbelts all the time. I mean, oh, yeah. It's, it's a different era completely. And, and I think law enforcement's very different, too. The Colonial Parkway was a party place. That's where people went to buy drugs. And a lot of teenagers just went out there to party and do what teenagers have always done. But this is a major highway when well, they say that. That's what I'm thinking. Well, the Colonial Parkway's a misnomer. A lot of people kind of think of it that way because when you look at it on the map, it's a 23-mile road and it connects Williamsburg with Jamestown and with Yorktown. But it's an old, slow road. When you're out on that road, it's paved very differently. It's paved with a rough gravel to simulate a colonial road. Hmm. It's patrolled by the Park Service. It's the longest, narrowest national park in the country. There's no visible lights. There's no gas stations. There's The pull-off areas are strictly there for scenic views. The parkway itself is a creepy, isolated place. During the daytime, it's a beautiful corridor of trees that you drive through to, to get to Williamsburg. It's wonderful. We love taking it. At night, it's this dark tunnel. There's no street lights. There's no ambient light. You can't even see the houses that are nearby because the, the parkway obscures them deliberately. So people do live out there, just sort of set back, I'm assuming, in the trees. There's subdivisions that come up where their backyards kind of butt up to the parkway. And this was true in, in the 80s oh, when yeah, this happened? Oh, yeah, but you wouldn't see them. You know, it just, it's literally an obscured view. They tried to really recreate what the road was like during the 1700s. So it was really designed by its very nature to be very isolated. It sounds fantastic and terrible at the same time. <laughs> it, it, you know, I loved going on there uh, and still do during the daytime. But having done this book, we went out several times on the anniversaries of the crimes and went to the crime scenes at dark. 
And, and we've just kind of come to the conclusion it's a very scary place because the way the road's paved, you hear that when a car comes, you hear a distant rumble coming down the road. And the headlights, there's a lot of turns and snakes. You don't see the headlights until they're right on top of you. And you really get a feel that that hasn't changed much from the time that the crimes took place. That road is pretty much maintained as is. It's almost preserved as a snapshot in time. The first two victims are fascinating in this because they are a lesbian couple. One is Kathy Thomas. Now, Kathy graduated in the second class to ever graduate with females from the United States Naval Academy. So she was kind of a pioneer in many respects. She served at sea, which was a rarity for, for a lot of women. And she really wanted a combat role. But in the 1980s, putting women in combat ships wasn't a thing that was done. You also have to bear in mind in the 1980s, her being gay was kept very secret because that was a reason to have someone's security clearance revoked. Oh, wow. It was considered something you could be blackmailed for. Hmm. There was such a stigma attached to it. She left the Navy, became a stockbroker in the Virginia Beach area and was very successful in, in what she was doing. She had a number of friends at the College of William and Mary, which is in Williamsburg, and was introduced to Rebecca Dowski. Now, Rebecca was a student there. They had formed a relationship with each other and had become very close. They were last seen together at a computer lab working on a computer program. This is back in the days when we didn't have laptops and stuff. You had to go to a special room. You had a dedicated CRT terminal and you worked at it. They were working on helping someone with a homework assignment, and the two of them left to go get dinner. They were going to be going back for Columbus Day. Rebecca had plans to go home to upstate New York, and Kathy had plans to go back to work. So they were literally going out for a dinner. It is presumed that they may have gone, as they had done before, to the Colonial Parkway for some private intimate time. They have made it a habit to go out to the Colonial Parkway to, to be alone, essentially. Essentially, that's the working theory is that there's a number of pull-offs on the Colonial Parkway that are picnic areas during the day, parking areas during the evening. And they have been known to do this. They've been known to go off and to use the Colonial Parkway as a place where they could go. And it made sense given the proximity to the college. Whatever happened, happened on October 9th, late in the evening, they were approached by a person or persons. We don't know if this is a single serial killer or two. My daughter and I, who's my co-author, we disagree on this point. Oh, you do? <laughs> but don't tell me yet who thinks what. She claims I'm wrong. I claim she's right. Of course. So well. <laughs> but when you look at what happened, um, they were taken from the vehicle and tied up. And so they were tied with their hands behind their back. Kathy Thomas was nearly decapitated with an incredibly sharp knife. And strangled. Rebecca was, as well, strangled with a piece of cord. They were then placed in the Honda Civic that they were in. It was Kathy's car. And whoever the killer was doused it with diesel fuel and tried to set it on fire. Now, a lot of people don't realize this, but you can't just light a match, throw it on diesel fuel, and it lights up. Diesel fuel has a higher ignition point than just fire. Oh. So they found a number of matches where somebody had tried to light the vehicle on fire, and they had failed. So when that all failed, they pushed the vehicle over into the York River and it went over the embankment and went nose down. Now, it's a small car and the embankment's about a 12 to 15 foot embankment at the time. The car literally kind of disappeared over the edge, but it didn't fall into the river. So if you were on the opposite side of the river, you would have seen a car Partially nose submerged. down. No, 
it didn't even reach the river. It hit a muddy bank at the bottom. That must have been very frustrating for him. It had to have been. Bear in mind, he's trying to obscure the evidence. He's trying to destroy the vehicle first. That fails. Then he pushes the vehicle over the edge. It took uh, about three days before a jogger spotted the vehicle, called the park police. They smashed the rear window, which is unfortunate because whoever was pushing that vehicle was probably pushing that rear window because they saw two bodies inside and didn't realize they were dead. So they were trying to rescue them. They were trying to execute a rescue. They pulled them from there. Now, because the Colonial Parkway is federal property, it's a national park, the Park Service has jurisdiction, but they don't investigate murders. That's the FBI. At that point, the FBI became involved. And unfortunately, what they focused on was the fact that this was a lesbian relationship. Yeah, remember, this is old school FBI. We're talking black suits, black ties, white shirts. Male. So, <laughs> male. Yeah, there were no females. And, and they really focused on the lesbian relationships and really thought this might have been a lover's triangle type thing, something along those lines. So they thought a woman would come and nearly, one of their friends nearly decapitate them. I mean, this is someone who's literally brought two different weapons, right? Like a cord to strangle Rebecca with, and then a knife to cut Kathy's head off. Sexual assault or no? None at the that was identified at the time. Okay. The FBI really focused on that. So they focused on their inner circle of friends who were also gay, really split that group up, kind of turned that group against each other. And it turns out that was a waste of time. Isn't that, as a cop, what you do is, you know, investigators look at the inner circle first and then go out. It makes sense. But when you go out, once you realize that's a dead end, they didn't have anything. And that really caused some problems. And you got to remind, 1986, the concept of profiling was pretty new at that point. Behavioral science unit at the FBI was only about a decade old at that point. And they had only coined the phrase serial killer in the mid-70s. Correct. So you're looking at something that wasn't really known. They thought it might be a waterman. And bear in mind, the the clues there are the diesel fuel and a sharp cutting knife, which would have, you know, diesel fuel is often used for boat fuel. Okay, so now go back for those of us who are landlocked in Texas. (laughs) What is a waterman? Well, it's an interesting culture here in the York River area and along the James River area. These are folks that are fishermen or crabbers or whatever who work the water. They have their own little dialect, their own way of speaking. They're a very closed community. A lot of them are loners and they uh, operate. A little off the grid, it sounds like. Kind of. I'll admit it. I, I went down and tried to engage with some of them and you know, they're not going to engage with somebody on their culture. Independent operators. And the thought was maybe it's one of those. But again, they couldn't find anyone that really fell into that niche. Tell me the physical evidence that they have so far with this case. Whoever handled the bodies had to have picked them up and put them in the vehicles. We don't know where they were actually killed. There would have been a lot of blood splatter on the ground, but it was three days before the bodies were found and it had been raining. So we don't know physically where they were killed. So they may have been driven to this particular spot on the parkway from a different spot, or they may have been killed right there. We don't know. Did the ladies have a favorite spot that they would go to? No one knew which one that was. Was there a thought from the FBI that one of them was brutalized more than the other? Kathy with the decapitation. And maybe that's where the lover's triangle came in. I'm assuming that it was more personal with Kathy 
Although I got to tell you, strangulation is about as personal as you get. I agree. I think that is a factor and could be a factor into what triggered this, but we don't know for sure. Could be that Kathy fought back harder and maybe that irritated the person. We don't know. Because we're trying to get into the mind of somebody that we haven't caught yet, yeah. you know, and, and pinned down. What happens at this point is the investigation stalls. We've all seen the show First 48. You don't get them in the first 48 hours. You start losing your evidence and your trails. And that's kind of what happened with this case. Whoever the killer was physically had to put the bodies in the car. They had to have left trace DNA. Right. Now, bear in mind, 1986, DNA yeah. wasn't a science that was being utilized to solve crimes. But now we have the techniques with MVAC and with some of these new technologies to go back to those articles of clothing and see what we could pick up. The killer handled the rope. They have the rope. And it's that plastic clothesline type rope from the 1970s and 80s. You know, it's kind of a nylon with a covering over it. So there is ample evidence there with that first crime. But no weapon, no, no weapon, no. So he left the rope, but he took the sharp yeah. object that, which is, sounds like a machete, probably or something I, like. That. You know, I, I don't think it was a machete from the description, and somebody turned in a machete a couple of years ago that they found, and the FBI said this is not consistent with the weapon used. Hmm. Whatever it was, it was a very sharp knife. Now it could have been a hunting knife, a tactical knife. Fisherman's knife, yeah. we don't know. Yeah, like a fillet knife almost. But you have to be really strong to be able to almost decapitate someone, especially, I'm presuming, Kathy was probably pretty physically fit. Absolutely she was. Okay. Being a graduate of the Naval Academy, you don't come out of there without athletics. So what are the, the families of these two women saying? Are they trying to pressure the FBI? Absolutely. Both families want to know what's happened. But, you know, as was common back then when cases went cold, they just went cold. The FBI definitely wanted to solve it. I've talked to some of the former investigators. They were desperate to solve the case, but they didn't have tangible leads to work off of. And once you got past where the physical evidence could take you, it comes down to, did anybody see anything? And unfortunately, no one did. So the things that are working for this killer are no witnesses because it's so dark. It doesn't sound like anybody even saw another vehicle pull up, right? And the fact that these women had a kind of an unpredictable schedule and, and no one even knew that they were going out there because it was anonymity for them. No physical evidence, despite the fact that the bodies weren't submerged. So it's gone cold. It's 86. That probably took a couple of months. Well, what happens is nothing really occurs again until September of 1987. You know, that's David Nobling and Robin Edwards. And David Nobling, guy in his 20s, he had gotten a young girl pregnant, but, you know, was straightening out his life, was getting ready to start a new job the following Monday before he was, the Monday before he was killed. David had had some rough and tumble times, but he was straightening out his life and, and really, I think, was kind of like we all are in our early 20s. He's trying to figure out where you're going to go. And once he kind of figured it out, he was getting ready to move forward. Now, he had met Robin Edwards. She was a hard child to raise, was the best way to put it. She was a runaway. She had had run-ins with 
law enforcement, et cetera. Younger kid, I mean, we're talking somebody who's 14 years old. David's in his 20s. Wow. He had met her because his cousin was going on a date with her, and basically David drove. Somehow, during the date, the two of them had agreed to get together later in the evening. We don't know for sure what the arrangement was, but apparently around 11.30 in the evening after the date was over, David pulled up out in front of Robin's house. She climbed out a window and went over and joined him in his truck. So she liked David more than she liked his cousin. Right. Oh, boy. Okay. But we don't know what the nature of their relationship was. They went to a place called Ragged Island, which is the creepiest darn place I've ever (laughs) been to. Ragged Island? Ragged Island. It's a known drug area right on the banks of the James River. It's a wildlife refuge. You pull up and the sign's got a big shotgun hole in it. It is a very creepy wildlife preserve. And it's a swamp. To be perfectly honest with you, there's a parking area. There's an area where you can walk down to the river. And the rest of it is kind of a swampy area, depending on how much rain we've had. Literally, there's a wooden walkway that goes back a mile to take you to a small beach area. But that wooden walkway is there because it's swampy on both sides. So if you step off that wooden walkway, you're up to your you know knees and muck. What we do know for a fact is that David Nobling's truck is found. And when it's found, the door is ajar, the headlights are on, and the radio's playing. The keys have been turned to the accessory position, which you do to play music. And he had a very nice stereo system and the music was playing. Initially, their bodies aren't found. It took a search of the area and they were found along the banks of the James River. David had been shot in the shoulder and in the back of the head. Shot? Shot. Okay. Robin had been shot once execution style in the back of the head. The supposition was they had probably been parking and the killer had interrupted them, got them out of the vehicle because David shot in the shoulder. He must have struggled with the killer either to get away or to try to help Robin or something. Shot in the shoulder and then shot in the back of the head. Because you wouldn't shoot somebody in the shoulder after you shot them in the back of the head. Right, right. So, so he, was, he turned to run, probably. I don't want to—the family's very sensitive about that. Okay. I would think that he would try to protect her, but I also think there's a certain amount of instinct where he may have tried to run, but there was nowhere to run. Right. Their bodies were found several days later, so it was the usual decomposition that takes place with that. Swampy area. Their clothes are all found in the vehicle. So they had no clothes on? Well, they would strip down to like underwear. So their outer clothes were were in the vehicle. If it is the same killer, he's also now carrying a gun. Big gun or small gun? Um, I believe it was 38. Okay. So something so, uh, that he could it, pocket it's pretty a, easily. It, it's going to have a kick. We don't have any evidence of rope. But what we do have that's a little bit interesting is the staging of the vehicle. So the vehicle is left with the headlights on, the radio on. The keys are turned to accessories. And I was talking with his brother, Michael Nobling, who lives in the area. And Michael said, that doesn't make any sense. He said, because I helped him wire that vehicle. And he had wired the stereo directly to the battery so you could just turn it on. Hmm. You didn't have to turn the keys to accessory. The killer did that? The killer did it. The killer did it and left the door ajar and left the keys in the vehicle so that someone would take the vehicle. He was drawing attention to a vehicle. Oh, wow. Because the bodies were hidden, so it wasn't that he wanted the bodies discovered because they were hidden so well. He wanted somebody else to pick up the vehicle, steal it, and then they're implicated in the murders when the bodies are found. That's smart, but it's really remote. Given that area, 
it had a horrible reputation. When I went out to visit it for the first time, I couldn't find the entrance to it. A highway guy that takes care of vehicles with flats and stuff pulled up. He said, do you have a problem? I said, no, I'm looking for Ragged Island. He goes, so you're out here to either get weed or a blowjob. <gasps> and I said, no. Neither. <laughs> no, I'm just out here to look. And he goes, well, that's what Ragged Island's known for. So, you know, it even still today kind of has that weird little stigma attached to it. And I got to tell you, my daughter and I have been out there a few times and it, it is creepy. Is it patrolled ever? No. It's right next to the James River Bridge. It's literally the James River Bridge is 10 feet away. How far away are these two crime scenes? The one a year earlier. We are talking around 12 miles. Okay, close. So they're close. So this is someone who knows the area. There's no doubt about that. Knows the area and now is demonstrating some planning. He's killed his victims. Most of the time, a killer tries to immediately try to put as much distance between him and the crime as possible. This guy stages the vehicle for theft. So he's hanging around and I'm going to grant you it only takes a minute or so, but he's doing that. Unfortunately, the evidence with this crime is all messed up because the police, when they find the truck, tow it back to David's house. They don't know that he's missing. As a matter of fact, they accidentally left some of the fingerprint cards in the yard of the Nobling house. The Nobblings found them. The chain of evidence was bad. And decomp was so bad that you probably couldn't get any samples off of her to see if it was a sex assault? There's nothing at that point that they could have done. Wow. We don't have a great deal of evidence, but we do now know that the killers, if it is the same killer, is using a gun. So we think that the killer was trying to attract a drug user to take this truck. Somebody. And given where Ragged Island is, it would have been a drug user or somebody pulling in there. And if they saw an abandoned vehicle with the lights on and the radio playing and the keys there, you know, he's hoping someone's going to take it. How did he know that a couple would be there, though? Don't know. They probably hit a brick wall within the first week or so, I'm assuming. Absolutely. It was a horrible situation across the board. You know, nowadays when they're searching for a body and they find them, they make an extra step to, you know, inform the families, hey, we found them. Families found out watching live TV news when a helicopter's flying over and photographing the dead bodies on the beach. The search was horrible. Michael Nobling's father actually put on waders and went out there oh, because gosh. the police weren't doing it. And he was there on the scene when they found his son. The preservation of the crime scene in period was horrible. They connecting Kathy no. and Rebecca to David and Robin? No, at this point, no one has coined the phrase Colonial Parkway murders. Nobody is going, hey, this is another couple and it's a year later. Close proximity. Yeah, no one's making that connection. But yeah, I attribute that to the time. You know, serial killings were really rare. That we know of. That we know of. Now we're <laughs> learning that they happened all the time. But, you know, we weren't making those kinds of connections. I wonder why that is. I think about that often, why we don't make those connections. you got to bear in mind, we live now in a 24-hour news cycle. So the capability to make those connections is instant, and it's in our face constantly. And I think jurisdictions are now more used to sharing information, and there's CODIS and, you know, all these different systems. So. You just don't get that in the 80s. In the 80s, it was, yeah, we've got a couple that's killed over here, so what? That's so unusual, though. I, I mean, know. 
That happened in September of 87. So this is a, a year off in between. Yeah. If this is the same guy. If it's the same guy. Okay. So now we move to the third couple, which is the one that I find probably was the killer's best crime because we don't have bodies. Okay. And that is Cassandra Haley and Keith Call. This is in April of 88. So he's speeding up a little bit. A little bit. He's not entirely consistent. There are a few trends, though. So far, these murders have always taken place on weekends, which tells you something about the killer. He has a full-time job. <laughs> Keith and Cassandra, it was a fluke that they were even together that night. Keith had temporarily broken up with his longtime girlfriend. They were planning on getting back together. Oh, no. They had done this before, and, and it's just kind of a cooling-off period. It reminded me of Ross and Rachel on Friends, you know, when they, we were on a <laughs> we break. We were on a break. Cassandra had been dating a young man who went on to become a professional football player. You know, she wasn't looking to get into a relationship. They both attended Christopher Newport, which is a local community college. They met, decided they'd go to a party together. Hmm. So Keith went and picked her up in his car, and they went to a party off campus, which is a small apartment building. They were seen at the party by everyone, but they weren't together. It's not like they were cuddling together or whatever. Keith was over talking to a friend of his girlfriend's, saying how he was looking forward to getting back together with his girlfriend. Hmm. And Cassandra was talking with some people she knew at the party. They weren't even close. And Keith had promised to bring her home in the early morning hours. And they left prior to, I believe, 2 o'clock, 15 minutes before her curfew time to get her home because he's a responsible young man. And it was only a 10-minute trip to take her home. And so he took off. They left. And we're never seen again. Their car is found on the Colonial Parkway, less than a mile from where the first car is found. Less than a mile from Kathy and Rebecca. Yes. And 11 to 13 miles from David and Robin. Yeah. You know, what's interesting is in the car is most of their clothing. Their wallets and the keys are laid out in plain view. The car door is left open. Now, what's really interesting is Keith's brother was coming back from Richmond and driving on the Colonial Parkway that night and actually drove by his brother's car. And he saw a van and he saw what he thought was Keith's car with the door open. Didn't think much of it. The van was there and the van followed him for a short distance. His father worked at the Budweiser Brewery in Williamsburg and lived over in this area in Gloucester drove right past the car. He saw it and stopped. When he looked in the car, he didn't see anything out of the ordinary. What had happened in the interim is the park police had found it, gathered up all of the clothing, took it to try to figure out who the kids were. They assumed some kids were out skinny dipping. Now, I'm going to tell you, it's April. <laughs> in Virginia. In that's Virginia. Cold skinny dipping. I've been out there in April, comparable weather. Nobody in their right mind would have thought these kids went skinny dipping, but they literally told the local newspapers, oh yeah, these kids probably went skinny dipping and nothing to worry about here. When they realized that the kids were missing, they went back and restaged the vehicle. The park police did. Mm. They put all the stuff back where they thought it was. So at this point, any fingerprints and stuff are, are hopelessly lost. Now, the FBI finds out about it on the radio and the FBI goes, okay, wait a minute. This is a mile from where we just had a pair of people be murdered. These are probably connected. So this is the first time that people start going, whoa, 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 someone's killing pairs of people. And this was seven months from David and Robin. Right. Okay. So they went and they did 
an exhaustive search of the York River because the assumption was the killer had dumped the bodies there. And these kids were naked. Having somebody without their clothes is a way you can control them, especially their shoes. Mm -hmm. When you take somebody's shoes, killers can maintain control of them. It's harder to run away. But did that happen with Kathy and Rebecca? No. They were fully clothed. They were clothed. But the killer is getting better. And so what we have is an abandoned vehicle. Now, they're searching the York River. They actually find a dead body. It's not the one they're lo- no. ones they're looking for. This guy who jumped off a ship up at the Naval Weapons Station further upriver and been missing. Now, they went back to their waterman theory, and they had the profiler work it up. And he said, whoever this is is very boisterous. And so they'll be driving a large truck, probably jacked up. Well, they had witnesses say a van, which seems the most... Uh, Yeah, the van, they couldn't find anybody else who'd seen it. There's no other descriptions. They did narrow down to a, a waterman, a pair of brothers, one in particular, who had some violent crimes. And they were staking them out, and they noticed that the watermen were out cleaning the interior of the vehicle with bleach. Hmm. Now, they're also fishermen, so this could be to remove fish smell from where I'm sitting. They moved in. They polygraphed these guys. They used the top polygrapher nation on them, and guys both cleared. The FBI is stuck. And now, more importantly, the media has connected all three of these pairs of murders. After two years, almost two years. Yeah, uh-huh. but and so the public pressure turns up. Now the FBI forms a task force and they bring in the Virginia State Police and a couple of law enforcement agencies, but they don't bring them all in. And there's a lot of them. And it's not exactly a big sharing session. It's more of who do you think could do it? I always thought that was kind of a mistake on the part of the FBI because a lot of times local law enforcement, they got a pretty good handle as to who the troublemakers are in their area that they might want to concentrate on. It just wasn't a true task force the way we think of a task force now. Hmm. It was more of, hey, you know, this is going on. Keep us surprised. If you get any tips or leads, let us know type thing. Their bodies to this day have not been found. We're trying to figure out how someone thinks. If you look at the geography of this, they're at a party and the Colonial Parkway is 10 miles away. But Cassandra's house is, I think, six. He's taking her home. So whatever happened didn't happen on the Colonial Parkway. Why is he so comfortable there? I don't know. But if you think about it, he was taking her home. He's not going to drive her to the Colonial Parkway. Right. Both of them, by the way, didn't like going to the parkway. It's not like they were lovey-dovey all night, been drinking and said, let's go make out. Cassandra had a fear of the Colonial Parkway. That would have been the last place if Keith said, let's go make out. That didn't make sense. But the police kind of focused on the car must have been there for a reason. I think whatever happened, happened between the party and Cassandra's house. Which was, you said, six miles away? Yes. I think whatever happened, they were intercepted in that piece of road. Because Keith was a conscientious kid. He was taking her home in time for curfew. He made a point of telling people that. Are they trying to now cross-reference people who knew Kathy and Rebecca, David and Robin, and Cassandra and Keith? They try, but they can't. They cannot find a common person. Now, they do have a person that comes forward name of Ron Little. He's a weaselly little fellow. He's a personal security person, he calls himself. And kind of like a guy who does store security type things. And he's tied in with a local law enforcement person who's highly irreparable, Steve Blackman, here in 
Gloucester County. And Blackman's known to be a very violent person. And Ron kind of does a weird interview with the local authorities saying, I'm the primary suspect in this case. He comes forward, you said? Yeah, he comes forward and then he tells the media he's the prime suspect. Oh, gosh. He ends up getting deported during all of this because he's from New Zealand and, you know, his passport wasn't up to date or his paperwork wasn't up to date. He has ties to Steve Blackman. The two of them are reportedly, they are involved in the drug trade. Blackman is just a thug. He's like the worst kind of cop that you can imagine from the 1980s. He beats people up. My daughter and I get tips probably once a month, and it's always almost the same thing. Have you taken a look at Steve Blackman? We've taken a look at him, so has the FBI, so have a number of other law enforcement agencies. So far, no one's been able to make connection. Just because he's a bad cop doesn't mean he's a killer, but everybody's very comfortable with the fact that he could have been the person doing it. And if you've got a pair, any forensic psychologist will say there's a dominant and then, you know, a submissive. So it sounds like that dynamic would work between Steve and Ron. Yeah, no one ever could tie them to it. I think the Park Police did a horrible job of managing this crime scene. So is this the last thing that happens with the serial killer yeah. Cassandra and Keith? Yeah, the FBI runs out of leads again. And there's now kind of a public awareness that this is going on. A lot of people have floated ideas that it could be somebody impersonating law enforcement. I did a search of the records. There are a number of people arrested in former policemen's cars who were pretending to be cops. But those people were all investigated and no one was ever pinned to the crimes. There's bits of the evidence that fit this. In the case of Kathy's wallet, in her vehicle, the glove box is open. And the same is true with Keith Call. As if they were getting their wallets. As if they're getting registration. I have a sneaky suspicion with Keith and Cassandra. They were killed somewhere else. Their bodies are somewhere else. Whoever the killer was drove their vehicle over to the Colonial Parkway and abandoned it. Why do you think he would do that? Is it really tied to the hope that somebody is going to take that vehicle and... It's either that or he is trying desperately to recreate what happened with that first murder. And he wants to be back on that Colonial Parkway one more time. So is the FBI profiling this guy in any way. Absolutely. They do believe it's a single person. In the Knobling case, he definitely lost control because he's had to shoot him twice. He's tied these people up. He's exercising a high degree of control. If you had two people, you wouldn't have lost control of David. Yeah, when this happened. Shooting him in the shoulder. You wouldn't have had to shoot him in the shoulder because you'd have two people there and you'd probably have one on him. There's little tidbits that kind of point to this. That's where my daughter and I differ. My daughter's convinced it's got to be two. The loss of control didn't mean much to her. But to me, I think he lost control and I don't think he would have lost control. Why do you think he's picking couples? With a serial killer, they try to duplicate that experience over and over and over again. Because they enjoyed the first experience so much. And in this case, he enjoyed that experience on the Colonial Parkway so much that he's like, okay, I'm going to duplicate it. I'll find another couple. That got out of control and he shot them. And then he gets a little bit better. Next one, he perfects it because we've never found the bodies of Keith and Cassandra. Where is he? What happened? He did this for a year and a half, three couples, six people. What happened to him? He does one more set of crimes. The fourth set of murders takes place on Labor Day weekend of 1989. 
which is the two-year-ish anniversary of David and Robin then. It's very interesting because Anna Maria Phelps and Daniel Lauer knew each other but didn't really know each other closely. Daniel's brother lived out in Virginia Beach. He was going to be moving in with him and his wife to help them make rent and things. They had taken Anna Maria Phelps down there. She was down there and just having a good time for the weekend. She was living with Daniel's brother. And he said, well, I'm going to go home and get my stuff. They were from the same hometown, which is just south of Richmond. And she said, well, can I ride with you? Drop me off, see my parents, go get your stuff. Come pick me up. I can go see my parents for a short time. Labor Day weekend, they drive from Virginia Beach back to the Richmond area. He also drops off a couple that had been partying with them for the weekend picks up Anna Maria and heads back towards Virginia Beach. The next morning, their car is found while they're heading eastbound to go to Virginia Beach. It's found in the westbound rest area on I-64. The window's slightly rolled down and someone has taken a roach clip out of his car, which had a feather on it, and has pinned it to the window. Keys are left in the ignition. The killer has actually put a little sign, essentially, to attract attention to the vehicle. Well, their bodies aren't found either. Initially, it takes six weeks. They do a search of the area, and they didn't do a good job. These hunters find the bodies six weeks later in the woods. They've been covered with a blanket. Obviously, animals have gotten to them. There is evidence of stabbing. Stabbing? One of the fingers on uh, Anne-Marie Phelps actually has a cut in it and hadn't healed. So it was a recent stab wound, like a defensive stab wound. But their bodies are found on this logging trail. We've been back there. It hasn't changed much. I've seen the actual crime scene photos. I'm guessing it's creepy. It's creepy. It's a narrow tunnel through the woods. It's a logging trail. So it's if you don't know that trail, you wouldn't ever take your car back there because you don't know if you're going to get stuck or get to a place where you can't turn around, you know, and have to back up a mile. So whoever it was knew this area, had scouted it out to do this. They were seen by an eyewitness on the eastbound rest area. So they were physically there. Whoever this person was intercepted them, took them most likely in his vehicle up to the first exit, gets off, goes on this mysterious logging trail, drives them back on the logging trail, kills them in a struggle. Bodies are left there. Whoever it was came back, had to have gotten to the far rest area, crossed the highway on foot, got to their vehicle, drove their vehicle up and over, and then parked it and staged it on the outbound. Then he gets in his vehicle and leaves. But again, is this staging so the car can be stolen and it can be pinned on someone else? Or is this staging like, I'm back, I'm here? Well, it's interesting. The profiler that we talked to said, we felt the roach clip was a message to police taunting them. Mm. He put it in the exit lane. So it's not parked like in a normal place. It's literally parked on the exit lane to get back on the highway, just off of that. And and the window's down and the road clip's attached. It's done almost to deliberately attract attention. Four couples dead in a three-year period. Do they have any leads at this point? Nowadays, you'd be able to track so easily whose cell phone was hitting which tower at that time of night. You know, you would have been able to pin some of this down and get a list that you could have compared from site to site. 
Now, this would have been solved. You, the DNA would have been employed quickly. We would have profiles of this person identified with all the cameras and stuff that are out there. Even though the Colonial Parkway is isolated, there's cameras I am positive at this point that show who's coming on and off the parkway. This is the 1980s. All of that stuff didn't exist. So did they keep any of the blood evidence or anything that could oh, the be evidence, run now? The evidence is totally preserved. So let's talk about his progression. Kathy and Rebecca are not hidden, right? Correct. And then David and Robin, even a more isolated place, right, are hidden. Yeah. He had tried to hide Kathy and Rebecca, who were up first. Then third is Cassandra and Keith, who are totally missing. and We have Correct. no idea where they are. And then Daniel and Anna Maria could have been missing, but it just happened to be— They were hidden. They, they were, were hidden, hidden well, right? Yeah. Okay. So it does sound like Kathy and Rebecca truly were the first. Does that sound right? I believe that. My daughter, who's my co-author, believes these are connected cases. This is a killer who got better and more refined, and he improved his tools that he had. Does this stop? Yes. In 89, just cold after a three to four year period, it just stops. What do you think made it stop? You know, the classics are all the same. One of the killers, if it's a pair, ends up in jail. Because if it's a pair, they, they individually won't do the killings. Mm-hmm. One of them's dead, or the killer himself is dead. For all we know, he had a close encounter in, with law enforcement, and law enforcement didn't realize they were dealing with the killer but it scared him. But this seems like a compulsion he can't control. Well, but, you know, if you look at some of the serial killers, it's fascinating to me. BTK, quit. Mm -hmm. Green River, quit. Yeah, They have a lifestyle change. Golden State Killer aged out. He said, I can't jump through windows anymore. Right. There's a point where certain times lifestyle changes, like a new wife, a new job, leads that killer to do it. The old school thinking is one of them's in jail or he's in jail or he's dead. I don't subscribe to that. We don't have a string of these types of crimes taking place anywhere else, of couples in this fashion. What was this experience like working with your daughter on this book? This is very violent. It's violence against women. It's an investigation of an unsolved case. You're working together very closely. Was this sort of a unique experience for you? Victoria's great because she offers a completely different perspective because she's younger. And as much as I like to think I remember how what it was like to be young, it's very different when you start talking to somebody who is in that age frame. And, and she was very much in the age frame of some of the victims. So from her perspective, I think it actually helped us produce a better book because she could go, well, Dad, let's not jump the gun on this or that. And It's always good to have a different set of eyes when you're at these murder scenes. And these murder scenes are, are all very much as they were during the period. You can go to them. What an odd and wonderful bonding experience. I can only hope one of my own daughters is interested <laughs> in writing a book with me in about It's worth years. doing. It's worth doing. In the annals of true crime, what are the lessons? There is evidence. I hope that the FBI and Virginia State Police process that evidence. After the Golden State Killer's apprehension, I have the exact same hope for this case. I think it's going to be DNA that ties it, this person to at least one of the crimes. And if they can time to one crime, then they can evaluate, did he have the potential of doing the others? On the next episode of Wicked Words, 
he called Peter a cab and told the cab to take him to the Waldorf Astoria. And so the cab took him there. He got out of the cab. And just as he was about to check in to the Waldorf, he changed his mind. And somewhere between there and the townhouse, he met a murderer. If you love historical true crime, please check out my books, American Sherlock and Death in the Air. This has been an Exactly Right Tenfold More Media production. Alexis Amorosi is our producer. Andrew Epen is our sound designer. Ella Middleton is a researcher for us. Curtis Heath does the composition. Nick Toga did the artwork. And Ilsa Brink designed the website. The executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. If you are an advertiser interested in advertising on our show, go to midroll.com slash ads. And if you know of a historical true crime story that could use some attention from the crew at Tenfold More Wicked, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. Listen, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.